everybody. Good to see y'all out this morning. Um, first, I'd like to say that uh, the uh, last night we had the opportunity to hear a fantastic story given by Kent. And, um, of course, they say behind every good man there's usually a woman. And so today we get the opportunity to hear the other side. And so we're so excited to um, meet. Corey, and I had the opportunity to meet her last night and again this morning, and um, I, I believe she has a very strong commitment to the Al-Anon program, and um, she views it as a, a, a really huge resource in the, um, her commitment to recovery is that it this is the foundation of a happy and healthy life, and I think um, both of y'all work in the program together your separate programs together is what really does bring happy and healthy families together. So I'm just so excited to hear Corey's side of this story. So Corey, would you come to the microphone, please? Hi, everybody. My name is Corey, and I'm recovering one day at a time in the Worldwide Fellowship of the Al-Anon Alateen Family Groups. Hi, can everybody in the back hear me? It's usually not a problem, but I do want to check. Can you all hear me? Okay, if you can't, you let me know. Um, and I'll try not to mack the microphone as I talk. Um, I want to thank Jean for calling and inviting me to speak and then inviting my husband to speak. Um, and I want to thank Jackie and Mary Ann for uh, talking with me last night and having coffee with me this morning. This Azalea City Jamboree is wonderful. we got a magnificent basket in our room, and everybody's been so kind to us and so welcoming. And it really is an honor and a privilege to be asked to speak anywhere, um, but particularly about the Al-Anon Family Program, which has done miraculous things in my life. So I want to thank the committee and everybody who had a part in this. Um, it touches my heart to be asked to, to share my experience, strength, and hope in Al-Anon. Um, it's unusual for me to talk after Kent, um, so I, it's, I don't know how that's going to work today, because I usually set the stage, and then he tells you how he thinks it was, but I will just like to say, um, I was sober. I was sober through the whole thing, um, and I'll just leave that as it is. Um, whew, uh, I get nervous. I get nervous when I speak. Not so much for me, but I get nervous for Al-Anon, because I want to do a good job for Al-Anon. I don't speak for Al-Anon. I can only tell you what Al-Anon has done for me, and I will only share from here my experience, my strength, and my hope. And I hope that you take away from this, if anything, um, the hope that I found in Al-Anon and how much I love the program of, of Al-Anon um, and how much I love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because were it not for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, first, I wouldn't be here. Um, and second, Al-Anon wouldn't be here. And, um, and third, my husband would not have the life that he has. Uh, without the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am so very, very grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous, um, for being willing, for, for being there, for having, having, having your hand out, um, to him and to the Al-Anon family groups. I am a very strong believer that alcoholism is a family disease. Um, I have been profoundly and deeply affected by somebody else's drinking. And I believe that with every fiber of my being. But I didn't know that when I got here. Um, as you heard Kent say last night, if you were here last night, um, we got here on September 18th, 1998, our two-month wedding anniversary. Um, I'd married this man. I'd never been married before. I was 36 years old when we married. I waited 36 years to meet and marry the perfect man. He was a raging alcoholic when I did it, and there was nothing wrong with me when I got here. Thank you very much. Um, 
And there was nothing wrong with me that his not drinking as much wouldn't fix. And that was it. I didn't even want him to quit drinking completely. I just wanted him to not drink as much. And because I knew nothing about the disease of alcoholism, I had no idea that I was asking him to do the impossible. I was asking him to control his drinking, and I had no idea that that was physically, psychologically, spiritually, and mentally impossible for him to do. I thought if he loved me enough, he'd quit drinking, or he'd drink as much. Um, and it has nothing to do with love. If you're new in this room and you think that if they just love me enough or if I just love them enough, it would change, I will just tell you, my experience is alcoholism has nothing to do with love. Love has never been the question in my marriage. It's never been the question in any relationship I've ever been involved in. It has nothing to do with whether or not they love me or I love them. Alcoholism is a disease that means to tear families apart, that is a negative disease that means to make me miserable, bitter, angry, and lonely. That's what alcoholism does to me, and I don't even drink. I am supposed to tell you um, in a general way what I was like, what happened to me, and what I'm like today. You may have already noticed I'm not from around here. Um, my husband says I'm the only person he knows who can give a two-hour talk in an hour. Um, so if you get finished listening before I get finished talking, that's okay. Um, um, I, I was the youngest of uh, three children for nine and a half years. I'm actually one of four children. At nine and a half years old, my little sister was born, and I learned um, in Al-Anon that that was probably one of my very first resentments was my little sister. Um, and I also learned in Al-Anon, anything I share from this podium is probably what I've learned in Al-Anon. I didn't think of any of this stuff on my own. It's because people were willing to share with me and help me work, walk through the steps of Al-Anon myself so I could figure out what it is about me. What is it in me that causes me to react the way that I react, to feel what I feel, to think the way that I think, um, and there is something dreadfully wrong with my thinking, which you'll hear about as I talk. Um, but at nine and a half years old, my little sister was born, and what my brain told me at that moment was the reason my parents had my little sister was because I was not enough. If I had been cute enough, if I had been smart enough, if I had been funny enough, if I had been tall enough, if I had been short enough, if I had been something, if I had been more than what I was, they would not have had my little sister. Now, I am so grateful for the program of Al-Anon that has allowed me to change my attitude and my outlook upon life. It has allowed me to change my perceptions of what my life, what the events that happened in my life. Al-Anon has given me a way to go back and look at things in a different way. And I'm so grateful for that because when I do that and I can look at those events in a different way, I don't have to look at them with bitterness or with anger or resentment or with fear or with any of those negative emotions. I can look at them in a different way. Um, and what I know today is that my mother was um, 39 when she had my little sister, and I'm pretty sure there was no thought in mind when she got pregnant, oh, I think I need another child. Um, I think, you know, it just kind of sort of happened. But at the time, I thought they had made a conscious decision to have another child because I was not good enough. That's what my brain tells me. I'm nine and a half years old. There is no alcoholism in my family. I did not. I was not raised in alcoholism. That's what my thinking does without throwing any alcohol on it. Um, when you put me in a relationship with somebody who drinks, my thinking becomes horribly distorted. Um, but it's my original thinking that started out not in a good place. Um, so at nine and a half years old, I've got this idea that I'm not good enough, and that's the reason my parents have my little sister. Um, and I laugh today because my little sister is everything I am not. She's five foot six or seven, she's got long blonde hair, she's about this big around, she's just cute as can be, she graduated fifth in her class from college, she's brilliant. Um, and I laugh now because that's okay. 
For a long time, it was not okay. I was in a one-way rivalry with my little sister. I was always trying to match up with her because I thought my parents, because I was competing with her for my parents' affection. And that's not true. I mean, that is simply not the truth. That's never happened in my family. Um, At age 11, my father took a job that took us to Liberia, West Africa. And there were no American schools in Africa, and so my parents sent my older brother, my oldest sister, and I to boarding school in Holland. And, um, again, what my head told me was, if you were somebody other than you were, you wouldn't have to go to boarding school. Um, And to think that at 11 years old, I thought my father had taken this job in Africa so that he would get to send his youngest daughter away, that's just a tad bit self-centered. But that's all I could see was it was all about me. So I go to this boarding school in... um, Holland, I'm the youngest, the youngest person on campus. I'm put in a room with four Dutch girls who speak no English and me who speak no Dutch. Um, and I, I cried myself to sleep every night for three months until my older sister, I have an older sister who's 13 months older than I am. She came down, um, to my room. And what I've discovered in Al-Anon is part of the family disease of alcoholism for me affects my hearing. I don't often hear what's said. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what she said, but I'll tell you what I thought she said. What I thought she said was, I understand you're crying yourself to sleep every night. And my head said, she's going to comfort me. She's going to tell me it's okay. It's going to be great. And then what I heard her say was, if you do it again, I'll beat the crap out of you. You're embarrassing me. And I didn't cry again that night. I I didn't cry again from that night forward till the time I left that boarding school. Um, And what that, what I know today is what I started doing was I started stuffing my feelings. I started acting how you wanted me to act so that you would like me. Because what my brain was telling me was, don't forget, you're not enough. You're not good enough. If you don't do what they want you to do, they're not going to like you, and you're not, and you're going to be abandoned. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be left alone. Whatever. I'm not enough on my own, so I have to have somebody else there. And there's no greater fear for me than to be by myself. Um, that's not true today, but it certainly was true then. And so I started being whatever it was anybody wanted me to be. Um, if you wanted me to fi- be the funny little girl, I'd be the funny little girl. If you wanted me to be the athletic one, I would do athletics. Um, like Kent said last night, I always thought I was athletic. Turns out I was simply enthusiastic. Um, I'm not exactly coordinated, as most of my friends know, and so they all laugh when they think that I did sports. But that will tell you what, what to what lengths I am willing to go to be part of. Um, after two years, my parents moved back to the States, and I said I wanted to come home. Again, that's, that for me is a geographic cure, and I don't even drink. Um, I came, we came back to the States. We came back to Georgia, and I wasn't there three months before I was miserable. And the reason I was miserable was because I didn't fit in. In my head, I didn't fit in. And why I told myself I didn't fit in was because I'd lived overseas, and nobody in this little town in Georgia lived overseas. That's why I didn't fit in. I told myself I didn't fit in. My mother is English. My father was Dutch. My older sister and I were born in Canada. My brother was born in Africa. Clearly, we don't fit in. And that's the reason I told myself all those years I didn't fit in was because I had a different upbringing. It turns out I didn't fit in because I have an internal spiritual malady that I'm always looking to fill with something outside of myself. And if I'm always separating myself from you, I'm never going to be able to fill that spot in me. So when my dad came home in um, November or December after being in the States, I was in the ninth grade and said, we're moving to the Philippines. I said, yes, anywhere but where I was. And what I thought was I would go to the Philippines and everything would be great. And, you know, I'm a real smart girl. It never once occurred to me until I got to Al-Anon that wherever I went, there I was. It never, I never thought that I was going to be there too. Um, that's just baffling to me now, but it never crossed my mind then. 
And so we moved to the Philippines, and it was great because for the first time ever, my older sister, my older brother had not been at the school before me, like Kent had said his experience last night. My little sister was at the elementary school. I was at the high school. I was my own person for the first time. But by being my own person for the first time, I still have these life lessons I've learned, which is I need to be what you want me to be so that you will like me. So I'm really not my own person. I'm still whoever it is you want me to be. And I'm doing things to make you like me. I'm the manager of the volleyball team. I'm on the, I'm the president of the pep club. I'm, um, I'm doing whatever it is I need to do to be part of. Um, not because I really want to do it, but because that's the only way I know to get you to like me. So I'm doing a lot of stuff. I'm really enthusiastic. I'm very peppy. I'm, I'm just fun to be around. Um, I don't like, uh, alcohol does not do for me what it does for alcoholics. Um, but I would drink so I would fit in. And I don't drink well, as my husband will tell you. Um, half a glass of wine, and I'm pretty much done for the night. Um, and, um, and so it's real, it's real hard to try and monitor how much you're drinking so you can still, still fit in and not, you know, pass out after one beer. Um, but I did it. I was able to do that, um, because I'm willing to go to any lengths to fit in. Um, at the end of my junior year of high school, it was in April of my junior year of high school, my father came home and said, we're moving to the Philippines. We're moving to Singapore. And I said, oh no, we're not. He said, oh yes, we are. And I said, oh no, we're not. I, I'm going to be a senior. It's my senior year of high school. It's, I finally got all these friends. You can't move me my senior year of high school. And he said, oh yes, I can. And, um, we moved to the same, we moved to Singapore. And I'm so grateful that I'm able to look back on that today and see it in a different light and see God's hand in that move. Um, and I'm also grateful that I'm able to appreciate what my parents had to go through. One, to send me and my older brother and sister to boarding school as well as to, to move out of the Philippines because I, like I told you, I thought it was all about me. Since I've come to recovery, I've been able to look at that differently and realize how difficult it must have been for my mother to send her three oldest children thousands of miles away from school and how much they must have loved us to be willing to do that, that it was very important for them that we got a good education and how grateful I am that that, that they were willing to do that, um, as difficult as it was for them. And I have a wonderful relationship with my mother today. Um, I learned after I got into recovery that the reason, well, that's not true. I knew before I got into recovery that the reason we left the Philippines was my father's company wanted him to launder money. And my father said, I'm not willing to do it. I realized after I got into um, recovery, my father was willing to sacrifice his career to protect his family. Now, that's a life lesson that I didn't learn until I got here, even though I'd been exposed to it 10 or 15 years before I got here. Um, and I'm grateful to Alan for allowing me to see that. So um, we moved to Singapore, like Kent said. Um, we knew each other in high school. He was the student body president. He was the king of the the junior-senior prom. He was the king of the Christmas ball. He was Mr. Popular. He was voted most sparkling personality, and I was the new kid on the block. I mean, I was I was just new, and I did what I needed to do. I was exciting. I was enthusiastic. I was a cheerleader. Everybody got to be a cheerleader. It wasn't that I was any great cheerleader. Everybody got to be a cheerleader. I was always on the bottom of the pyramid, and there was a reason for that. Um, I gave some good support, but... Um, but but I did what I needed to do. Um, the only night Kent and I ever went out, and we didn't actually go out. We just ended up together at the same place. Um, and that uh, was our night we graduated from high school. I remember every moment of the night. I remember standing in the bathroom at the party, looking at the Budweiser cans in the bathtub. I remember going down to the local hotel, let me finish, to listen to a band. Um, I, re- I remember every moment of that night. My husband remembers not a single instance. He doesn't remember anything about it. Even when I tell him, he said, nah, I still don't remember it. I'm like, that's great. Should have been a clue. It was not. 
Um, I picked my college campus because I thought it looked good in the brochure. The pictures were pretty. I hadn't been in snow for about eight years. I thought snow would be good, so I picked a college campus in Maine. Um, it snows in November. It's not melted until May, and by the time it had melted in May, I had transferred. I would have told you before Al-Anon that I transferred because of the snow. Turns out I transferred because of a man. Um, alcohol does not do for me what it does for alcoholics. Relationships do for me what alcohol does for alcoholics. I am not enough by myself. I want the feeling that somebody wants me and needs me, so you just give me a relationship, preferably a man. That is my drink of choice. Um, and I found my first him in college. Um, I had no self-esteem before. I mean, these are my isms before I had ever got involved with anybody who drank. Um, I had no self-esteem. I was not good enough by myself. I needed a man. And I found this guy who was a year older than me, who lived on the second floor of my dorm. I lived on the third floor. I lived in a co-ed dorm. Um, and he drank vodka every night, either on the rocks or straight up. I always get that confused. Um, and he drank vodka every night. And I thought that was so sophisticated. I thought that was so mature. And um, And I don't date. I'm instantly in love. Um, the first time we go out, that's it. We have a relationship, and it is cool. we're going to trudge the road of happy destiny together. And uh, what happens to me is because I need you to make me feel good, um, the feeling doesn't last long, so I need you to do more. I need you to do more. I need you to tell me more often. I need you to show me more often. It doesn't matter how much you do it. It's still not enough for me because that's what the family disease of alcoholism does to me. And so um, my experience has been when you do that to a guy, they generally tend to run screaming from you, which only then feeds that you're not good enough because if you were good enough, they'd stick with you. If you were good enough, they'd love you. And so I get really, really needy. I get really, really clingy. They get really, really scared, and they run. And then I, I start that cycle again. Um, and what ended up happening to me is a guy, needless to say, dumped me. Um, and you can't, I, couldn't st- I can't stay there because everybody now knows that he's dumped me. Now, I'm a freshman in this college. I'm pretty sure nobody, maybe my roommate, knew that he dumped me. But I was sure everybody knew that he dumped me. So I couldn't stay. I had to move. I had to go someplace else. I could not face my shame, my humiliation on a daily basis, which is what I would do every time I saw this guy. And every time I saw him, my brain would tell me, see that? You're not good enough. He picked somebody else. Um, and I am a sticker. I am not a runner. I'm built for endurance. I am with you to the end. Once once I'm there, I am there to the bitter end. And um, so I had to move. And I transferred schools. And I transferred down to a school in Georgia. And I went to the guidance counselor. And I've known since I was this big that I wanted to be a lawyer. That's all I've ever wanted to do with my life is be a lawyer. I got to the guidance counselor. She said, not with those grades. You're not going to law school. Because I do what I do. I, I devote all of my attention to him. And all of my grades suffered that first year of college. And even when I'm not him, I'm still thinking about him. When I'm not with him, I'm still thinking about him. Why didn't he want me? Why did he say that? Why doesn't he love me? What do I need to do? So, you know, it's really hard to study when you're spending all that time focused on him. Um, and so my grades were not good. And so I decided at that point in time I was going to do what I needed to do to get the good grades to do what I needed to do. Um, and that is a lesson that I learned. I learned um, that if I just work hard enough, if I just put my mind to it, if I just devote enough energy and attention to it, I can do anything. And I will tell you, three years later, I graduated from that college with honors. I got early admission to the law school of my choice. Um, I took a year off, told my father I wanted to be independent and pay for law school myself. That was a mistake. Um, but I did it. I did it. And um, went off to law school and um, 
And when I'm spending, when I get focused on something, I'm focused on it. So I didn't date in college. Um, I got to law school. I didn't really date in law school. And the entire time I'm not dating, my head is telling me it's because nobody wants to be with you. That's what the disease of alcoholism tells me. It's because you're not good enough. You might as well devote yourself to your studies because nobody's going to want to be with you anyway. So I've got that voice in the back of my head. I've got the other voice in the back of my head saying, make them like you, make them like you, make them like you. And so I'm doing everything to make them like me and to do well because, you know, I'm not going to end up with somebody to take care of me and you're not good enough. Lots of voices in my head. I graduated from law school. Um, I decided that I wanted to join the Army because they had sent me to Washington one summer to work, and I thought that would be a great job. And um, they called me two weeks before graduation, and they said, uh, we're going to send you to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And I said, oh, no, I don't think you are. And they said, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Now, this is what I said, and I'm not an alcoholic. That's a dry county. I don't believe I'll go there. I don't know how I knew it was a dry county, but I couldn't go someplace there wasn't alcohol. Not because of the alcohol. But today, I think it's because there wouldn't have been alcoholics, and I love alcoholics. Um, and so then they said, Fort Hood, Texas. And I said, no, I don't think so. So two weeks before graduation, I'm unemployed. I have law school loans, and I'm panic-stricken. And I ended up getting offered a job in Montgomery, Alabama. And I will tell you, my mother, when I told my mother I was moving to Montgomery, Alabama, she said, oh, my, I never thought one of my children would end up in Alabama. <laughs> now, Here's the God of my understanding today. My mother lives directly across the street from my husband and I. My brother lives in Huntsville, Alabama, and we're trying to get my little sister down from Ohio to Alabama. So um, we have no idea what God's plan is for us. So I came to Montgomery, Alabama with the idea of staying here for two years and then moving back to Georgia. That was in 1988, and I've never once moved back to Georgia. I'm still here. Um, but right before I, my two years when my commitment was up, I was going to go back. Um, to Atlanta, and I met another him. <laughs> you know, and once I meet him, all plans change. And um, I met him at a charity softball game, and um, I thought, wow, this is cool, a charity softball game. He's socially conscious. Um, and I, we went to, you know, we went to a party afterwards, and he's having just a couple of beers because you know I'm watching. I wouldn't have told you I was watching. I had no idea I was watching, but I'm watching. And he's drinking Budweiser. I gotta stay awake from guys who like Budweiser. And um, and we chat, and he asks for my phone number. And I thought, wow, he's asked for my phone number. What a gentleman. And he called me that evening at about 10 o'clock, and he said, um, the party's still going on here, and I need to get up and go to work in the morning. Do you think I could sleep on your couch? And I thought, oh, he's responsible. He's got a job. He's hardworking. Oh, this is wonderful. So I said, yes, you could come and sleep on my couch. And he did sleep on my couch that night. That was the only night in two and a half years a man slept on my couch, but he did sleep on my couch that night. Um, but you see, I don't date. I'm instantly in love. The moment he said those things, it was all I needed, and that began two and a half years. Um, I don't know if he's an alcoholic or not. I know this. His drinking bothered me, and it bothered me very quickly. And uh, we're living together, and I'm doing things that I would not usually do, not the way that I was raised, and I was justifying them and rationalizing and defending them. I knew my parents did not want me living with somebody before I got married. I knew the institution of marriage was very important to my parents. I justified my living with this guy by saying, well, my older sister had done it, so it can't be that bad. Um, well, I'll tell you, when I, for me, when I justify those things that I know are not right in my heart, a little piece of my soul dies every time I do it. Um, and so I start doing what I do, which is focusing on him. And I'm watching how much he's drinking. And I will tell you, like I said, I'm, I've got seven years of a higher education. It never once occurred to me, when I talk to him about his drinking, to not talk to him about his drinking when he's actually drinking. 
That thought never crossed my mind. So I'm doing things um, like explaining to him why he shouldn't drink as much. I don't know if anybody can relate to this. I'm an explainer. I want to explain it to you. If I just explain it to you in the right way, at the right time, with the right words, when you are in the right chair, you will understand. And if you really understand, you will say, you are absolutely right. I'll do it your way. You know, I just think if you just do that, everything would be okay. And so I'm explaining to him on a regular basis why his drinking is bothering me. Now, it is no wonder that that nagging, can't tell, I said, you can't drink the way that they drink um, with that kind of nagging. And I was nagging. I mean, I, we, we call it in my home group, badger woman. And I was badger woman. Um, it's no wonder the beer can started flying. Um, he never once hit me. Um, he, he would throw beer cans at me. Doors would get slammed, holes would get busted in the walls, um, plates would get would get busted. It's a miracle that he never hit me. Um, but I didn't understand anything about the disease of alcoholism. I just knew that his drinking bothered me. And I didn't understand why, if I told him it bothered him, if he didn't love me enough, why he wouldn't stop. Um, I did things. This is This is the insanity of alcoholism for me. And I don't do anything small. He had a three-year-old son. I took this picture of his son who was... Um, in the leaves with the football, and I don't just blow this thing up to 10 by 12. I blow this sucker up to 10 by 16. Poster size. Frame it. Hang it on the chair directly, hang it on the wall directly across from his drinking chair. And I stand in front of it like I'm Vanna White, and I say, if you don't love me enough to quit drinking, perhaps you love your son enough to quit drinking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had no idea. I had no idea what I was doing to that man. Absolutely no idea. And that, that was the, that was the first time a full beer can came flying at me. <laughs> Boom. Um, I had no idea what I did to that man. And I will tell you, that man's been on my ninth step list since, since the beginning. Um, and, and I have, and I have talked to my sponsor about it. I did my steps with a sponsor. I did all 12 steps. I did them in order. I did not start at 12. Um, I did them all in order, and when I got to my ninth step, and we made a decision that I, at the time I could not make that amends without hurting him or his family at the time. And um, so he's been on my ninth step list. I've been willing from the beginning to make that amends. And two weeks ago I was um, sitting in court, and I was doing something on the computer, and the defendant happened to have the same last name as this guy, and so I plugged this guy's name into the computer. I've not been able to find him, you know. Thing I'm just going to plug it in. It's not... He popped right up. I'm thinking, oh crap, it's time for a ninth step. Um, and I know, and I, and I, and I had, I, I did not call my sponsor for a week because I knew what she was going to tell me. Um, I told my husband that I was going to have to make this ninth step amends. Um, he's been very supportive of that. I've talked to my sponsor about it. I'm in the process of doing the steps I need to do to make an appropriate ninth step. Um, and it's appropriate for him, not necessarily for me. Um, I'm willing to do that work today, and I'm grateful for that. So, so this is the relationship I had with this guy, and um, what ends up, what 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 I like to do um, in order to get you to like me, because um, I'm not enough by myself. I, I like to buy you things, or give you money, or give you credit cards. Um, and so I gave this guy a credit card, um, but I also have a huge fear of financial insecurity. So while you have the credit card, I'm checking everything that you're doing with it. Um, that's really difficult to live with too. And I like, can't mention the financial struggle. I'll get into in a, in a little bit. 
um, for both of us. And so he's got this credit card, and he liked to buy weapons with this credit card, and I don't like weapons. And so he came home with a weapon, and this just tells you how insane I am. And I had a problem with me being insane when I got here. He came home with a weapon, and I don't know exactly what it was, except it was long, it had a handle, and it looked like it could probably blow a ginormous hole in me. And um, I... I explain to him again why I thought it was inappropriate for him to use the credit card to buy a weapon. Now, he's got the weapon in his hands. He's been drinking. I know he's been drinking. I can smell it on him. And he goes to the bathroom, to the closet, and he locks himself in the bathroom, and he says to me, I'll just kill myself. I'm just going to kill myself. That'll make you happy, won't it? I'll just kill myself. Blow my brains out right here with this weapon. Wouldn't that make you happy? And we did this dance for an hour and a half with me trying to talk him out of killing himself. And I'd like to tell you that the reason why I tried to do that was because I was so concerned for him. But I can tell you from doing the work in the Al-Anon 12-step program that the reason I wanted to talk him out of killing himself was how would that look to you about me? What would you think of me that this guy would rather kill himself than to be with me? And that's what was going through my head. He'd rather die than to be with me. And that's what the disease of alcoholism does to me, and I don't even drink. Well, he didn't kill himself, but he said, if you love me, you'll buy me a house. And I said, I don't think so. And I don't know what happened. He, he, we got in this fight about this house that he wanted me to buy, and I said I wouldn't buy it. And he took off, and he didn't come home um, the night, and he came in the next morning, and he said, um, I need some space and time to see if this is if this is really what I want. And I, this is God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Um, for one instant, I had a moment of courage, and I said, take all the time and space you want. This ship has sailed. And that was it. And off I went. And I moved back. He was living in Birmingham. We were living in Birmingham. I was driving back and forth to Montgomery. I had an apartment in Montgomery, but I was living in Birmingham. And I drove back to Montgomery. Um, and just for that moment, just for that moment, I had enough courage to say that. Um, because it didn't stick. I, you know, then, of course, tried to get him back. But he'd already met somebody else. So, of course, my brain is saying, of course he met somebody else. You're not good enough. And then when he married her three months later, that's really when it kicked in. I said, see, if you'd been good enough, he would have married you. And that's really all I wanted was I wanted to get married. It didn't matter to whom I wanted to get married. I just wanted to get married because I thought, I thought that I had to have somebody with me. Um, and uh, and at that point, I made, a, I made a conscious decision that I was not marrying, I was not dating anybody who drank. Um, and so the last time I was actually in Mobile, um, was a while ago, and um, I was stalking a guy from Mobile, actually. Um, it was a weird little thing. Um, it never, the, the relationship never worked. It wasn't actually a relationship, um, but, you know, that didn't stop me. And, um, and uh, the thing about this guy was he had 20 years sober at the time, and, um, and he didn't drink. Now, I didn't understand alcoholism because we would go to, to work functions, and I'd say, well, just have a glass of wine. He'd say, I don't drink. I said, well, just have what's just one. He'd say, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Okay, I hear you. Just have a glass of wine. Um, and God loved the man. He he he, he was very kind to me. Um, but I made this decision. I wanted a man. He didn't drink. And um, in, 1990, in 1997, um, I got an email from this guy in Washington, D.C. that I'd gone to high school with, and that was Kent. It was February 1st, 1997, and my life changed on that day. I had no idea it was going to change, but it did. Um, he is absolutely correct. The first phone call was 11 and a half hours long um, because, you know, I don't date. And uh, I hung that phone up that next morning, and I called my best girlfriend. I said, this is him. I'm going to marry him. And um, in the course of that conversation, and, you know, I didn't start off with that idea in the beginning of the conversation. It was just, it was the last time I felt like um, I really liked myself was when I was in high school. And I had no idea um, until much later that was the last time he felt like he had some potential. Um, and during the course of this conversation, I said to him, I want a man who doesn't drink. And he said, I don't drink much. And I said, well, how much is much? And he said, six or eight beers a week. But, you know, that's really not drinking. So that idea that I had on a man who didn't drink just completely pushed aside because I have him. You know, what, six or eight beers a week? That's really not bad. 
He, when he, the first time he told me he had 18 beers that first night, I was appalled. Um, everybody else thinks that's great. 18 beers, that's a good number. I'm thinking, that's just insanity to me. But, so, um, I hung the phone up that next morning at 8.30, called my girlfriend, said, this is the man I'm going to marry. And by God, if I didn't marry him. And we did the, the first month, we did by phone call. We say we had to get married because we couldn't afford the date. And um, he moved down here to be with me. I had a house. I had a career. I had a bank account. Um, I got him a job. I bought him clothes. Um, I got him moved down here. But what happened in July of that year was my father called me and said, pick a wedding date. And I said, okay. And I picked my parents' 40th wedding, uh, wedding anniversary in March to get married. And then I called Kent and I said, um, how do you feel about getting married in March? And he said, okay. Now, Kent had not asked me to marry him. He had, and I'm just taking control because that's what I do. And um, he called me back about 15 minutes later, and he said, um, you think I ought to get divorced first? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I, now a normal, I don't know why we call them normal, I don't know why, maybe earth people, I don't know. What they would have done, I suspect, is gotten him divorced first and then planned the wedding. Well, I can't take a chance. I got, I, I can't. I got to get them divorced and plan the wedding. And so we are, I am planning a divorce and planning a wedding all at the same time. Um, and in the midst of all of this, my father was diagnosed with brain cancer and he passed away after five weeks. He was diagnosed on August 23rd and he passed away September 25th. Um, and that's the last time I consciously remember praying, please God, just let him live. Please God, just let him live. And when, when my father passed away, my thought was, see that? God doesn't love you. God thinks you're not worthy of, his, of answering your prayers. God has no use for you. And that was the last time I consciously prayed until I got to Al-Anon. Um, and I was in Al-Anon about a year before I actually started praying um, because I was sure God hated me. I was sure that God had taken a look at all those things I'd done in my life that I wasn't proud of and said, you don't measure up. You are not worthy. Go away. That's the idea, the God of my understanding when I got here. Um, because of the program of Al-Anon and because of people and women who are willing to share with me what they've been through in their lives, I've been able to look at my father's death in a different light. There is One of my best friends in Al-Anon lost her mother the month before I lost my father. And when I came in a year later, I listened to her talk about her mother's death. And it gave me an opportunity to look at my father's death in a different light. Um, I know today that God did not say to me, no, you are not worthy of your prayers. What God said to me is, honey, I love you, but I love him too, and you can't see the whole picture. And a day I'm glad I can see just a little piece of that picture. My father would have been miserable because he would have been incapacitated. My mother would have tried to, would have killed herself trying to take care of him. My family would have gone bankrupt trying to take care of him. Um, we would have done it. We would all have been willing to do it, but it would have torn the family apart. And I know today that that is not what God wanted for us. Um, and I can look at, I wouldn't have the relationship I have with my mother today had that event not happened. Now I don't think my, I don't think God killed my father so I could have the relationship with my mother. But I do believe that God can bring great joy at a great tragedy. And I look at that event as that, that, that God has allowed me to find great joy in what happened. Um, so um, we pushed the wedding back from um, March until July because we knew it was not a good idea to get married on my parents' 40th wedding anniversary. But I always like to say, Kent's divorce was final February 18th. In Alabama, you got to wait 30 days to get married. He could have gotten married on March 18th, and the wedding date was, Mar was March 28th. So I got him divorced with 10 days to spare because I am very good when I put my mind to it. Um, but we got, mar we got married in July, and um, one of the things he said to me, and this is my insanity, he said, my parents don't know I drink. And I'm thinking, you're 36 years old. Your parents don't know you drink. He said, it's a long story. And I said, okay. And he said, but we do need a refrigerator for the bedroom so that I can have beer here while they're here. And I thought that was reasonable. That's my insanity. Okay, so we went out, bought a refrigerator, put it in the bedroom, filled it full of Budweiser. Well, actually, that's not true. 
By the time the wedding rolled around, I was having a few fears of financial insecurity. So I said to him, we're not buying this $12 case Budweiser anymore. You're just pissing it away. We're not buying it. Um, you can buy any beer you want that is less than $6 a 12-pack. And we negotiated whether or not that included tax. And we determined it did not include tax. So he got to buy Red Dog beer that was $5.99 a 12-pack. Um, that's my insanity. That's, that's me trying to control his drinking. Um, and uh, so what ended up happening is um, we got married. We um, we were two months into the wedding, and he came. And I don't know I don't know why this happened, but on September seventeenth, the Thursday night, we got in a fight. And I'm not I don't I couldn't even tell you what the fight was about, but I knew that I I slammed out of the house. I had a function I had to go to. On the way back from the function, the thought came to me: you need to go to Al-Anon. I had no idea what Al-Anon was. That was a thought. Al-Anon. All right. The next, that night, we got in the bed and Ken said to me, I can't stop drinking without help. And I said, great, what do we do? I'm, I'm a big fixer. You give me a problem, I will fix it. And he said, I think I need to go to treatment. I said, great, let's go to treatment. I got up the next morning. I pulled out my Blue Cross Blue Shield book. It said, go to the mental health. I, we went to mental health. They said, honey, you just need to take him to treatment. I took him to treatment. We got to treatment. And that intake nurse starts asking him questions. When's your birthday? I'm answering. Um, how old are you? I'm answering. How much do you drink in a day? He says six. I say 12 because we're not going to tell him 18. Um, I mean, how would that look? Um, so um, she turns around to me and she says to me, oh, are you his mother? And I was offended. I was offended. And, and I'll tell you what I thought was, I do not look old enough to be his mother. It never occurred to me that she was suggesting I was his mother because I was answering the questions. I was three years in Al-Anon before I figured that one out. I thought it was about how I looked, and I did not look good when I got here. Um, and I'm so grateful for the for the counselor that, that um, took one look at me, and she said, if you love him, you will go to Al-Anon. And I was offended. I thought, how dare you suggest I don't love him? I just married him, for God's sakes. Of course I'll go to Al-Anon. Now I will tell you, this is my insanity. This is absolutely my insanity. I said to my husband before we got married, I expect you to be psychic. I expect you to know what I need and what I want. I shouldn't have to tell you. That's nuts. He said to me, I can do that. Now, he has never, <laughs> never displayed the ability to do that. If he had, we would have won the lottery already. That's crazy. The crazy thing for me is once he told me he could do it, I expected him to do it. I absolutely expected him to be able to read my mind. Um, and I will tell you, that is a huge defect of character for me, is mind reading on my behalf and on his. Um, but the other thing I told him was, I said to him, I will be a divorcee before I'm a widow. And he said, okay. And about three seconds later, he said, hey, that means I have to be dead. And I said, yes, it did. And I don't say that, I, I don't say that to be funny. That text tells you where it was for me. I was not going to fail at this marriage. So it never once crossed my mind to leave. Once I was in, I was in. I was never going to leave. And that has stood me in good stead. The reason I stay today is different from the reason I stayed then. But it has stayed me, stood me in good stead because I have both feet in my marriage today. I do not have one foot in my marriage and one foot out the door. Um, both feet firmly planted in this marriage. And so when she said, if you love him, you go to Al-Anon, I said, all right, I'd go to Al-Anon. And then I heard about um, the certificate you got if you completed eight weeks of family counseling. And every week, my family counsel would say to me, did you go to Al-Anon this week? And I'd say yes, and she'd make a little note. And then she'd say, what did you learn? And I'd tell her what I learned, and she'd make another little note. And I thought, ah, oh, this is the advanced course. 
This is the extra credit. I am going to graduate number one in my class from family counseling. That, my, that competitiveness is another reason I kept going to Al-Anon. I also bought every book Al-Anon purchased that was available in Montgomery, Alabama that first week, and I hauled them all around with me because I was sure the answer was in that literature. Now, I will tell you, the answer is in the literature. The answer I'm looking for today is quite different from the answer I was looking for then. I thought the answer then would be, how do I make him not drink? Um, the answer today is, what is it in me that has to control somebody else? And the answers for me are in that, is in that literature. And in the steps and in the meetings and in, in sponsorship. Um, four days in the treatment, my husband came home to me and said, I need to be rigorously honest with you. Um, when I got here, before I got here, before I married Kent, I had this list of what I wanted in a husband. I wanted him to be tall. I don't know why that was important to me, but that was tall. That was important to me. I wanted to be a college graduate. I wanted him to have a good sense of humor, and I wanted to make wanted him to make good money. My husband is five foot five. Today, my husband is taller than me. God gave me what I wanted. I wanted a man who didn't drink. When I married him, the man drank a ton. Today, today, I have a man who doesn't drink. I wanted a man who was a college graduate. At the time we married, he was not a college graduate. Today, my husband is not only a college graduate, he's got a master's degree. I have gotten everything and more that I've ever thought I wanted. Um, I just didn't know how to look for it until I got here, and I'm so grateful that Al-Anon has given me a way to look at all the gifts in my life. I don't think I get any of this stuff because I'm in Al-Anon. I think I get to see all of this stuff because I'm in Al-Anon. Um, so he came home, and he said that he, he had to be rigorously honest with me, that he was not a college graduate. He did not get an early out from the military. That he did not have 20, he told me he got a $25,000 bonus check when he left the military that was in a bank in Northern Virginia, which, you know, with my fear of financial insecurity, that was a grand thing. Um, he did not have $25,000 in the bank, and it was not his first treatment center, it was his third. And I was just stunned. Never once crossed my mind to leave. Never once crossed my mind to leave. He went to bed, slept like a baby, I cried the entire night. But you know, for me, I think that, that was a moment when I was willing to do whatever I needed to do. Um, he went to that AA meeting, like he said, and they told him to go to a meeting a day for a year. And um, he came home and he told me that. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And he said, well, you know, I think they're really the same program. Maybe you should do everything in Al-Anon that I do in AA. And that would began the first year where my husband sponsored me in Al-Anon. If you are thinking about doing that or are attempting to do that, my, my experience was um, it did not work well for us. Um, the very, the very, the very, it worked. Kent said that was a bad, the, the first year of recovery, he says, was the best year of his recovery. It was the most difficult year for my recovery. Um, but I'll tell you, we went to a conference in, uh, December and I heard Mary Pearl speak and she talked about drowning her, trying to drown her husband in the bathtub and I was horrified. Horrified. It never occurred to me to, 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 to it never occurred to me to try and kill him. I will tell you, the thought has crossed my mind a couple of times in sobriety. And I, and, and that is how I got my sponsor, because I don't know about you guys, but my husband has got a little bit of an obsessive streak, and, it, and whatever he's obsessed with, I'm obsessed with because I'm obsessed with him. Um, not so much today, but in the beginning, I, you know, we, we were connected. He was everything to me. We had no friends when we got here. We were completely isolated when we got here. We did nothing if we didn't do it together. And uh, so he said to me, I'm going to start running three times a week, two miles a week. And I said, I think that's a great idea. Um, should I ride my bicycle with you? And he said, I think that would be a great idea. So he's running, I'm riding my bicycle, and within two weeks we're training for a marathon. And as we're training for this marathon, and he's running, and I'm riding the bike, he's yapping in my ear. You got a sponsor yet? What's up with you on? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And I'm telling you, 
I got to the point where I just took one look at him and said, I'm out of here. And I took off on that bike, and I rode home, and I picked the phone up, and I called this woman in Al-Anon, and I said, will you be my sponsor? And she said, why me, honey? I said, because I'm going to kill him. I am just going to run him over. And she said, no, honey, why me as your sponsor? And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, but before I got to that point, what happened for us, and I'm so grateful for this, is we can't... We did date night every Saturday night. We went to dinner, and then we went to an open AA speaker meeting every Saturday night. And that was so very important to me because I didn't trust you people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I had this idea in my head that the women and that he was going to find somebody better suited for him in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was terrified of the women in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was terrified that he was going to get sober and that, that somebody else was going to get him. Um, and so I went to Alcoholics Anonymous with him initially, um, to check out the women in his home group, to find out who was giving my husband the eye. Um, and, you know, I don't think it matters why you come to al I don't think it matters why you come to AA. I came, and I heard what I needed to hear. And what I heard from the podium was people sharing their experience, strength, and hope and talking about what alcohol had done to them and what alcoholism had done to them and how Alcoholics Anonymous had helped them. And it was by doing that that I was able to turn my husband over to Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, when, you turn, when I turned my husband over to Alcoholics Anonymus, suddenly I had nobody else to focus on except myself. Um, it's tough to get to alcohol. It's tough to get to Al-Anon because, there's, you know, particularly when there's nothing wrong with you, it's really hard to stay in Al-Anon. At least it was for me when they start talking about I got to fix me. I, 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 you just fix him and I'll be fine. Um, and once I turned him over to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had nobody left to focus on except myself. And so I'm very grateful that we were going to a meeting a day for a year because that's the way I stayed long enough to hear what I needed to hear. And this woman came from Oklahoma and uh, she was sharing in a meeting and. Um, I remember the first night she was there and the first night I shared. And um, I said, um, I had not worked any of the steps, but I was carrying the message to others. And again, I, I have a disease that affects my hearing. And she said to me across the room, she said, Honey, you are not carrying the message. You are spreading the disease. And I heard her say, Shut up. I know today that's not what she said. But it hurt my feelings. It made me cry. I went home. I think Kent was a little panic-stricken. He said, are you going to go back? Of course I'm going to go back. I'm not letting them run me off of my meeting. And um, that was the woman I called that morning and said, will you be my sponsor? And she said yes. And she took me through the 12 steps. And she took me through the 12 steps in order, one at a time. And I did the work. I did the reading. I did the writing. Um, and someplace along that, somewhere along that that, that journey, um, I changed. Someplace along that journey, my higher power changed. The God of my understanding changed. Um and I'm so very, very grateful for that. I am not the woman today that I was when I came in. I came to Al-Anon for him. I stay for me. Because for the first time in my life, I like the woman that I am becoming. For the first time in my life, I love the relationship I have with the God of my understanding. Um, today, I can be the best me that I can be. I can be the best wife that I can be. I can be the best daughter that I can be. I can be the best employee I can be. But I learned how to do that in rooms of Al-Anon. I learned how to do that by doing the work. And when I asked my sponsor to be my sponsor, she said, I said to her, and when she said, why me? I said, because I want what you have. And she said, are you willing to do what I did to get what I got? And I said, absolutely. And I have followed every suggestion that woman has ever given me. Um, I followed that suggestion when I didn't understand why I was following that, understand, that suggestion. I thought if I just understood it, I could do it. The reality is if I just understand it, I'm going to try and change it. Um, we have a little thing in our literature that says, if I understand the way things are, things are the way they are. If I don't understand the way things are, things are still the way they are. 
So I don't, it doesn't matter if I understand or not. I followed every suggestion that woman gave me. She told me to get involved in service work. She told me to get in the car. And I started doing service work. I started going. I, I became a uh, group representative. I became our district rep. I started going to area assembly. Um, I was sharing with Jackie and Marianne this morning that uh, a few years ago, um, she said, you will stand for an office at area assembly. And I said, okay. And I was telling somebody I was going to stand, but I really, the only thing I didn't want to do was I didn't want to be treasurer. And I ended up having to go to a funeral in California. They called me and said, congratulations, you're the area treasurer. <laughs> okay. Um, and then I called her and my sponsor said, I really don't, I really don't want to stand for another office. She said, you'll stand for another office. So I stood for another office and I'm currently serving as our area's chairperson. And that's a great job to have. You want to do service work. That's a great job. That, Lots of fun, lots of enthusiasm. Um, and I, after I stood for that, I said to my husband, I said, I don't think I'm going to stand for anything else. He said, can I be on the phone when you call Luana and tell her that? <laughs> I said, I'm not really going to tell her that. And so when I said I conveyed this conversation to her, Luana laughed, and she just laughed. Um, but I do whatever that woman has suggested that I do. Um, I, I show up when I'm asked to show up. Um, when people call and ask me to speak, I'm willing to speak. Um, this is not my favorite. Standing up here is not my favorite thing in the world to do. Going to conventions at the ball, I love going to conventions. I do it without actually speaking, and that'd be great too. But I do it because I'm asked to share my experience, strength, and hope. And today I ask the God of my understanding to allow me to be a service wherever you want me to be a service. And so when you call and I do this, I do this. My favorite thing in the entire world to do is sponsor women. That is my favorite thing in the world to do is the women I sponsor have changed my life. Um, it is just, it is such an honor to be able to walk this journey with other women. And when I got here, I didn't like women. I thought, um, I, I thought women were mean and catty and competitive, and we are. Um, but I've learned, I have learned how to be a, a friend to women. I've learned how to allow women to love me, and that's a gift. I have some tremendous, incredible women who are examples to me in this program. Um, and uh, I'm going to share, I know I'm really running close on time, but I'm going to try and share two really quick stories. Um, about two and a half years, about three years ago now, um, my husband decided that um, one thing he wanted to do was he when they we first went into Iraq he wanted to um, apply for a job they were looking for some folks he wanted to put his name in and I did not want him to do it and I called my sponsor and she said you know we practice that fit tradition we support and encourage the alcoholic and if that's something he feels he needs to do then um, if you want to practice the fifth tradition in your household then you will support and encourage him so I said to him what I've been taught to say to him I'm sure you make the right decision honey I love you and I'll support whatever decision you make and I was terrified I was absolutely filled with fear um, I did the work my sponsor told me to do and um, six months later we got notification that the base that my husband worked on was going to be closed and my husband might lose his job and I thought okay now that was not the way I wanted him not to go to Iraq um, but what ended up happening was um, he made a decision without any input from me that it was not a good idea for him to go to Iraq um, with the because the possibility exists that we'd come home without a job and that he needed to stay here. So he turned down an opportunity to go to Iraq, and I was just so very, very grateful for that. But then we had to face the thought that we might actually have to move. And I have a job that I absolutely adore. I love what I do. I make good money. I love the people I work with. I get to explain on a daily basis. It is wonderful. <laughs> the other thing I like to do is I like to research. People call me the most, that's my nickname in Al-Anon. I'm the most resourceful one. And if anybody's got a question, they call me. If I don't know the answer today, I can say, I don't know the answer, but I can find out for you. And um, so I get to re I get to, to uh, research and explain on a daily basis, and it's fabulous. And... Um, but he, he might have, we might have had to move for him to take a different job. And I practiced that fifth tradition. I said, I'm willing to go. I have established myself in my career. I can get a job anywhere you want to go. Whatever you want to do, I'm willing to support you on that. And I was willing to move. Um, we didn't have to move. But the interesting thing that happened out of that is 
position became available that is was my dream job. It was absolutely my dream job, and I was not going to apply for it because I didn't think I was good enough. I didn't think I could do it. And people in this program love me enough to tell me, you need to apply, you need to try. And um, so I did. And the only reason I was willing to apply, the only reason I was willing to consider a different job was because I had been willing to consider a different job for Kent. And if I was willing to take a different job so he could do what he could do, I am worthy enough to be willing to take a different job because I'm good enough to take a different job. So I applied for this job. And I will tell you, I came this close to getting it. I did not get it. But people had told me in this job, in, in, in this journey, your job is to walk in the direction of your dreams. Where you end up is up to God. During the course of that whole that whole um, episode, I was praying um, the St. Francis Assisi prayer, the 11th step prayer, um, every day. I was asking only for God's will to be done in that situation. And uh, when I didn't get the job, I um, I knew with every fiber of my being I was exactly where I was supposed to be. For whatever reason, I was exactly where I was supposed to be. And what ended up happening was two weeks after that, my boss's wife, who'd been suffering with breast cancer, um, took a turn for the worst. And um, I knew that I was in the job I was supposed to be in so that he could be where he needed to be with his wife. And his wife passed away four months later. But he was able to do what he needed to do because he knew he could trust the office in my hands. He had myself, my office is only three people, myself, another woman, and him. And um, he knew that he could trust that office in our hands and that he could be with his wife. He could be with his family. And I had, I was, no problems with that at all. I was at complete peace with not getting that job. Because I was able to be of service. Because I ask God every morning. I do that third step prayer and that seventh step prayer. Help me to be of maximum service to you and to my fellows. And I was okay with it. Now now I've taken some steps. Um, so that should another position like this come available, um, I'm going to apply for it again. I don't have any qualms about doing that. I may or may not get it. My job's walk in the direction of my dreams. Where I end up is up to God. The last thing I'm going to touch on very, very briefly is the financial situation that Kent and I went through in, in October. I will tell you, I knew last January that there were going to be financial issues. I had a three-year financial plan when we got here um, nine years ago. And if we had not spent a dime on food, gas, housing, nothing, we may have hit my three-year plan. Um, but thank God for the program, Valenon, because my three-year plan became a six-year plan, became a nine-year plan. And I was, again, this close to meeting my financial plan. My financial plan. I was this close to meeting my financial plan. And I knew in January there was going to be a problem. When Kent came to me in, in October um, and said to me, um, and this is what I heard him say, I have gotten myself in a lot of financial difficulty. And I said to him, it's only money. Um, you could have knocked him over with a feather. I almost fell out of the chair. I thought, who is this woman saying this? And I handled that so well. Oh, God, I handled that so well. And then in January, in, and our, our nine-year plan is now a 12-year plan, and I'm okay with that too. Um, but in January, we'd gone to recovery weekend in Birmingham. We, I mean, I was oozing recovery. but a great weekend. I was just filled with the spirit of Al-Anon. And we got home, and I opened the mail, and he had bought $34 symphony tickets. And I had a meltdown, an absolute meltdown. I thought, how could you spend $34 on, on lottery on symphony tickets, for God's sakes? Um, now, we were way in debt at that point. And I'm freaked out about this $34. And we got in this huge fight, and, I mean, some things were said that needed to be said, but they were not said in a kind and gentle way. Um, and most of them were directed at me, and I needed to hear them. And I was in tears, and um, usually tears work, and they don't work. They didn't work that time. And I knew the only thing I needed to do was to get out of the house. And I started running. For me, not for him, I started running. So I went out to run. As I'm running down the road and I'm praying to, to the God of my understanding today, saying, please, God, help me deal with this. And the voice came to me. It's not his debt. It's your debt. 
You are in this together. If you have both feet in this marriage, it is your debt together. And you need to accept that it's your debt together. And you've got to quit blaming him. And you've got to quit watching him. And you've got to trust that I am going to take care of this. And, you know, I came back and I've been okay with it ever since. We have a financial plan. We are not depriving ourselves. Every bill is paid. We are not depriving ourselves. Um, and I've come to terms with it. I've accepted it. It's okay. Um, but he, he had to do some, he had to do different things. He absolutely had to do different things and I had to let him do different things. Um, but what that experience did for me was it gave me an opportunity to one, see how much I have changed, to see how far I have come, how much I've grown. It's given me an opportunity to allow my husband to be exactly who it is, who he is. It's given me an opportunity to love him exactly where he is. It's given me an opportunity to look at myself and to do what work I need to do on my fear of financial insecurity. And I start, and I've been doing that work and I've been doing that work with my sponsor. Um, it's given me an opportunity to see when I work on me and he works on him, the relationship works itself out. When I'm focused on him or he's focused on me, or even better, I'm focused on us. Oh my God, what a nightmare. Um, I say it to a lot, the women I talk to on the phone a lot. Um, I say it's really hard being in a relationship. It's hard work having a good marriage. And he says to me, he hasn't said it in a while because I think he finally understands. But he says to me, do you work really hard on this marriage? And I said, yes. He said, I don't work on it at all. And I don't say, well, duh. Um, <laughs> but what I try to explain to him, what I try to explain to him is I work on my character defects that come up in the relationship. That I'm working really hard on me that I don't allow my fear and my insecurity and my need to control to interfere with what's best for the marriage. And I learned how to do that by doing the traditions. And I, last year I started a traditions meeting in my home with women that I sponsor because I wanted to apply those traditions in my marriage. Um, and I continue to do that. The other thing that we've done this year is we do in my home, we do a big book study for the women that I study because, you know, our fifth tradition says we practice the steps of AA ourselves. I know of no better place to learn about the disease of alcoholism than in Alcoholics Anonymous. If I'm given a textbook about what the disease of alcoholism is, why in the world would I not study that book? And that's what we're doing, and I do that for me. I respect our traditions. I do not use big book literature um, in our meetings because the big book is not conference of literature for Al-Anon, and I absolutely respect that. But I can go outside of that and look at what I need to learn. And, you know, when I read that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I learn what my isms are. I just don't have the allergy to alcoholism. I just don't have the allergy. I have all the other isms. And today, because I have done all that work and because I work the program of Al-Anon to the best of my ability on a daily basis, I have a God in my life who wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. And today, I am happy, joyous, and free. And I thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, for giving me a life beyond my wildest dreams. If you're new, please keep coming back. Please keep coming back. Thank you for allowing me to share. Wasn't she great? One more time. Okay, but, um, if we can all stand and Hold hands, we'll close the meeting in the regular way.